we welcome eight new general authorities, one of whom, Elder Sorensen, was a missionary companion of mine almost a half a century ago. As we come to the closing minutes of this great conference, our souls are subdued and lifted by the inspiring messages of counsel and hope that we have heard. I come prayerfully to this pulpit, not to judge, but to teach and to caution. Recently, I saw on the wall of a stake president's office in Brisbane, Australia, a picture of a sad-faced little girl. Above the picture was written, Will I be happy? I suppose everyone in the world could ask that question. Will I be happy? The Savior himself prayed that all of his disciples might have joy fulfilled in themselves. I wish to speak of a hope that children will know a future filled with some happiness and peace. No gift bestowed upon us is so precious as children. They are proof that God still loves us. They are the hope of the future. In today's world, I cannot help wondering who will love them enough to help them be happy. Who will love them enough to teach them faith and moral values? They must learn so much more than survival and self-gratification. There is such a great need for the teaching of the heart and not enough of the civilizing part of education. Where will the children learn virtue? Who will care for them enough to mold their moral character? How can they become humane and kind and happy and make life richer for themselves and others? This teaching of the next generation is not easy in a society where many fundamental beliefs are disappearing. Deadly mass marketing challenges almost every cherished human value. Excessive permissiveness under the banner of individual freedom is one driving force behind this. Reaching a public consensus on what values should be taught to the next generation is almost impossible. People strongly disagree about almost everything. Social restraints are weakened. This means that we will have to teach our children a lifestyle of our own and provide moral anchors in the sea of self-indulgence, self-interest, and self-service in which they float. How can this tide of wrong values be reversed? Can anything be done to combat these challenges? May I suggest three ways to increase the hope that the next generation will grow up with a greater chance to find some happiness. First. Adults need to understand and our children should be taught that private choices are not private. They all have public consequences. There is a popular notion that doing our own thing or doing what feels good is our own business and affects no one but us. The deadly scourges that are epidemic all over the world have flourished in the context of this popular notion. But this is simply not true. All immoral behavior directly impacts society. Even innocent people are affected. Drug and alcohol abuse have public consequences, as do illegitimacy, pornography, and obscenity. The public cost in human life and tax dollars for these so-called private choices are enormous. Poverty, crime, a less educated workforce, 
and mounting demands for government spending to fix problems that cannot be fixed by money. It is simply not true that our private conduct is our own business. Our society is the sum total of what millions of individuals do in their private lives. That sum total of private behavior has worldwide consequences of enormous magnitude. There are no completely private choices. Secondly, adults and children need to know that public and private morality is not outmoded. We need to love our children enough to teach them that laws, policy, and public morals programs with a moral and ethical basis are necessary for the preservation of a peaceful, productive, compassionate, and happy society. Without the qualities and characteristics of integrity, honesty, commitment, loyalty, respect for others, fidelity and virtue, a free and open society cannot endure. Elder Dallin H. Oaks recently responded to those who say, don't legislate morality, said Elder Oaks. I suppose persons who mouth that familiar slogan think they are some, saying something profound. In fact, if that is an argument at all, it is so superficial that an educated person should be ashamed to use it, as should be evident to every thinking person a high proportion of all legislation has a moral base. That is true of the criminal law. Most of the laws regulating families, businesses, and commercial transactions. Many of the laws governing property and a host of others." Close quote. Until recently, ethics and moral philosophy were the foundation of higher education. They were a legacy passed from generation to generation. Those values are as relevant today as when taught by Aristotle, said he. Man perfected by society is the best of all animals. He is the most terrible of all when he lives without law and without justice, close quote. Therefore, public and private morality need much greater emphasis everywhere. The third and most important way to prepare our children for some lasting happiness is to fortify the family. For centuries, the family was the bedrock of this and many other nations. It was the glue that held society together. Now many families are in trouble and that glue is coming unstuck. As a result, many children are bewildered. They are growing up physically but lack the support system and the disciplined moral framework with love and understanding that a strong family can provide. It is in the home and with a family that values are usually acquired. Traditions are fostered and commitments to others are established. There are really no adequate substitutes. Church, school, and government programs can only reinforce and supplement that which is acquired in the home. To strengthen the family, the morals of human sexuality need to be restored. Bryce Christensen recently wrote, Children who have watched parents treat one another with affection and courtesy already understand more about the relationship between the sexes than they will ever learn from any class in reproductive physiology. Close quote. 
by the word of the Lord, all men and women are to practice chastity before marriage and fidelity after marriage. Thou shalt not commit adultery, said the Lord, nor do anything like unto it. The Apostle Paul was more explicit in his epistle to the Corinthians, as was Alma in the Book of Mormon. <clears throat> Alternatives to the legal and loving marriage between a man and a woman are helping to unravel the fabric of human society. That fabric, of course, is the family. These so-called alternative lifestyles cannot be accepted as right because they frustrate God's commandment for a life-giving union of male and female within a legal marriage. If practiced by all adults, these lifestyles would mean the end of the family. The scriptures clearly and consistently condemn all sex relations outside of legal marriage as morally wrong. Why is this so? It is so because God said so. It is so because we are made in the image of God, male and female. We are his spirit children. We were with him in the beginning. Bringing to pass our exaltation is his work and his glory. We are directed to be the children of light. We are heirs to eternal life. The spirit gives light to every man and woman that comes into the world. What values can be taught most effectively in the home? By commandment, parents in this church are to teach their children faith in Christ, repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. At home, in the warm security of discipline and love, we learn the values that never change. We learn the differences between right and wrong, as well as self-discipline, self-mastery, personal responsibility, and all the essentials of good character, concern for others, and civil manners. Values, public as well as private, cannot last very long without being regenerated and sustained by religious belief. It is a matter of continued renewal. An awakening of faith and belief in religious values is essential. Family teachings are encouraged by the Church, and the Church, in turn, through its covenants and ordinances, unifies the eternal family. Our temples are testaments of our faith in the everlasting family. Some say families can't do the job because so many people just do not have families. It is true that a great many do not have a functioning family. Or it is said that too many families fail. Unfortunately, that is also true. However, with all of its shortcomings, the family is far and away the greatest social unit, the best answer to human problems in the history of mankind. Rather than further weaken family ties, they need to be strengthened. To aid parents, the Church has available a thoughtful booklet, a parent's guide. I would urge overburdened parents to accept every help. Cannot grandparents, brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends also reinforce by example and precept their love and concern for other members of the extended family? My Aunt Angie has handmade 175 quilts for her children, grandchildren, nieces, and nephews, and others. They are a work of art, but more important, each is a labor of love. She can say to a member of her extended family as she presents a specially made quilt, 
except when I pricked my finger with every stitch I thought of my love for you. Good family life seems to have little to do with whether we are in affluent or humble circumstances. All over the world, the poor have good, resilient families. They do their best to raise their children and be good neighbors. They are money poor but value wealthy. Family problems seem to fall on both the wealthy and the impoverished. The White House Conference on Families reported that. Good families, rich or poor or in between, provide encouragement to their children, but no excuses. They teach character. They insist upon standards. They demand respect. They require performance. The White House report continues. For most, life is not a matter of legislative battles, judicial decrees, or executive decisions. It is a fabric of helping hands and good neighbors, bedtime stories and shared prayers, loving packed lunch boxes, and household budget balancing, tears wiped away, and a precious heritage passed along. It is hard work and a little bit put away for the future. In a healthy society, heroes are the men, women, children who hold the world together one home at a time. The parents and grandparents who forego pleasures, delay purchases, foreclose options, and commit most of their lives to the noblest undertaking of citizenship. Raising children who, resting on the shoulders of the previous generation, will see farther than we and reach higher." Close quote. Troubled as many homes may be in our society, we cannot abandon the home as the primary teacher of moral values. Nowhere else will it be taught so effectively. As Brigham Young counseled, by faith rather than by the rod, leading them kindly by good example into all truth and holiness. There is a deep private and public need to retrieve for the children the comfort of belief and belonging. The products of wealth, technology, and science all fail to satisfy inner spiritual hungering. Without turning back to the word of our Creator, no one is wise enough to sort out what ethical, spiritual, and moral values should be taught to the next generation and to their children and to their children's children. There is reason for hope. More people seem to recognize that public solutions are not as effective as family solutions. Some authority seems to be returning to the head of the home. But, most important, I see many adults, mostly parents and grandchildren, grandparents who are crazy about children. If in the process we can bring back into our lives and into our homes sacred spiritual and moral truths, we will reclaim a sacred and precious part of our heritage. Someone must love the children enough to do this. Then if it is done everywhere to the boys and the girls who ask, will I be happy? We can answer, of course. You are going to be happy, and even more if you keep the covenants and commandments of God, you will have the joy promised by the Savior when he walked upon the earth. You will have peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. 
which is the ultimate message of this church to the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Do you ever wonder, as I do, what gave the pioneer women the courage to sing All is Well in the face of their many challenges? Do you wonder how, as we face today's problems and concerns, we can continue to sing All is Well? We need our personal answers to these questions as we, the Sisters of the Church, respond to the charge given us to seek out and relieve the distressed minister to the poor and needy, feed the hungry, teach and train wives and mothers, welcome and include every sister, lead the young women, and nurture the children—all these to further the work of perfecting the saints. Some years ago, my husband Navin and I took our young children to a lake to vacation. He has always had the greatest confidence in their ability to do anything for which they are prepared. He taught a small son, age nine, how to manage a one-man sailboat, then let our son take the boat by himself out onto the lake. He joyfully sailed away, his bright life jacket and silhouette getting smaller and smaller against the horizon. Finally, we felt that Dave should make sure all was well, so in another little boat he sailed out to him. When he arrived, Doug was sitting calmly in the boat, but he had forgotten how to turn it around. The thing I love was his response to his dad. He looked up and said, I knew you would come. Sisters, we too can know that if we sometimes forget the instructions, when we are wondering what to do, indeed our Father will come. We may not, probably will not, receive a personal visit from the Lord, but the answers do come from prayer, the scriptures, the words of the prophet the still, small voice of inspiration. I should like to reassure you that we truly can find courage to face our challenges and also give service to those whose needs are even greater than our own. Gird up your loins, fresh courage take, our God will never us forsake. Today there are sisters in many places living in poverty, with hunger and disease taken for granted, infant mortality high and life expectancy low. In some places, fewer than 50 percent of the adult population can read or write, 70 percent of them women. There are those who have no pure water, some who have no water at all except that which they carry on their heads, often for long distances. There are some who live in the shadow of war. What gives these sisters the courage to endure? As with the pioneers, it is their faith that their Father will come, their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are other words, too, from that great hymn, And should we die before our journey's through, Happy day, all is well. Sometime to each of us will come questions of life and death, purpose, and our own inevitable parting. All of us have had losses, or will have, Perhaps it is for this that we are taught to mourn with them that mourn and to weep for the loss of them that die. David Macbeth Moyer once penned these words, We miss thy small step on the stair. We miss thee at thine evening prayer. All day we miss thee everywhere.
The death of a child is especially poignant, or that of a young person, or of a needed father or mother. We do miss those who die. No matter how many friends or family members one has, the loss of one beloved person is difficult. One great difference for us is our added knowledge that death is not permanent, that families can be forever. The understanding we have of the reality of the resurrection makes the waiting endurable and purposeful. Indeed, sweet is the peace the gospel brings. Here, too, the solace sisters bring to each other and to sorrowing families is part of the work of love assigned to women. Single women in the Church continue to be included daily in the prayers of Church leaders. Many single sisters are living rich, full lives. They have made happy homes for themselves, their families, and friends. They serve as auxiliary leaders and teachers. They serve missions. They attend the temple and do genealogy work. They give compassionate service. They make the world better for their being in it. There are those in this group who have never married, although most of them would like to do so. There are widowed sisters who live alone and those whose marriages have been shattered by divorce. Many have difficult decisions to make regarding their choices in life. Should they pursue a career? Can they be successful in what has traditionally been a man's business world? Should they try to be? How do they balance their expectations with the reality of their lives? How do they find worthwhile relationships that do not have sexual overtones? How can they best fulfill the role given by the Lord to women? Some of these sisters are single parents. Their challenges are many as they try to be both father and mother on what is most often a diminished income. If they are employed and trying to be self-reliant, there is great concern about quality child care. Even when their children are grown, single mothers are still mothers and share in the trials as well as the joys of their children. These are sobering realities for many sisters. For all of them, there are no simple answers except, as for all sisters, to do the best they can every day, to look up, to learn, to evaluate resources within themselves, their families, their communities, to pray with faith, to search the scriptures, to find ways to be of service, to keep their own lives clean and pure, their relationships true, to forgive those who have caused the hurt. Even as this is so, however, may every sister feel the warmth of friendship from her sisters in the Church and priesthood support from home teachers and bishops who care. May she be included, welcomed, given opportunities to serve. There are lesbian women as well as homosexual men in the Church. The Lord God has decreed, Thou shalt not, and however hard the task, these people must likewise keep the commandments. Marriage and intimate relationships are to be reserved for husbands and wives, and any sexual relationship outside of marriage, whether between men and women or those of the same sex, is forbidden. Sometimes we hear of Church members who outwardly do all the things that would indicate full Church involvement yet who neglect their children or abuse them physically, emotionally, or sexually, who are untrue to their covenants or marriage vows, or who are dishonest in other ways. If such a person is listening, could we plead with you this night to, to repent, 
to seek help and forgiveness. Mormon wrote of other people in another time and place who also were in such a state of wickedness. He said, as it might be said today, Now they did not sin ignorantly, for they knew the will of God concerning them. I have a sweet friend who some time ago found herself in such a state. I do not know, nor need I know, what her problem was, but she did summon the courage to go tearfully to her bishop to confess. A church court was held. She was excommunicated and began the difficult process of repentance. Quite a long time later, after the spiritual healing had taken place and at the time of her rebaptism, she expressed great appreciation to a bishop who had shed tears of caring for her, even while being firm in the steps that must be taken, to a dear friend in Relief Society who, she said, had helped her to understand and forgive all those who couldn't understand or forgive her, to those who had helped to keep her testimony strong in those quiet, desperate times when coming home again seemed nearly impossible. I recently had a note from this friend, married now in the temple with a lovely family. She says, Tell the sisters that it is all worth it. Tell them how beautiful and joyful life can be when you keep the commandments. Perhaps this lesson is twofold. If you are not personally living a pure, righteous life, if you have somehow slipped away, repent and come back. Love and hope are real. If you know someone or the loved one of someone who has been excommunicated or disfellowshipped, try to understand the anguish. Sometimes what is said or done is less important than that someone cares enough to say or do anything at all. There are sisters who are caught in the web of drug or alcohol abuse with its threads of deceit, guilt, and unproductive lives. Some are dependent themselves on alcohol or on either legal prescription or illegal drugs. Some are the loved ones of alcoholics or drug users. It is indeed hard for them to feel that all is well. But even here there is hope. Seeking help early is the best chance for recovery. Pretending there is no problem, covering up for the behavior, or shielding the person from the consequences of that behavior will never solve the problem. There are excellent professional resources and support groups, some of whom, though not connected officially with the Church, still support LDS values. Above all, acknowledge your dependence on the Lord. Let Him help and heal you. As Alma taught us of faith, the desire to believe, to change, can be as a seed that will grow, sprout, and bear fruit. All can be well again. There may be times when we do not understand the why of the challenges we face, when whatever is happening doesn't seem fair or the people about us seem to be indifferent to our suffering. You may know the picture of the mythological tale of Icarus painted by Peter Bruegel. The story he illustrates tells of Icarus who tried to fly using wings made of wax created by his father. He did indeed fly, but in his enthusiasm flew too near the sun. The wax melted and he fell into the sea. In Bruegel's painting, only his white legs are visible as he disappears into the green water. A nearby fisherman and a plowman go unconcernedly about their work, and in spite of something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, a beautiful ship in the harbor sails calmly on. 
W. H. Auden wrote of suffering and of the world's indifference. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. So it is with most of our personal suffering. The world goes on about us as if nothing out of the ordinary were happening. However, within the bonds of sisterhood in the Church, hopefully it will be different. One of our daughters and her family recently suffered a tragedy. Their house burned down, leaving little in the place of all their worldly possessions. The blessing was that even though five of their six children were at home, their two teenage sons remembered the training they had been given, picked up the little ones, and ran from the house. All were safe, and they felt great comfort from their ward and neighborhood, who rallied around with food, clothing, and offers of help. Such a blessing it is to belong to the household of God. No one simply turned away or sailed calmly on. For this family, as for others who suffer trials and grief, love and help were extended, priesthood blessings, and the assurance from the Father of us all that blessed are they who are faithful and endure, whether in life or in death, for they shall inherit eternal life. And the promise given to Joseph, that thine affliction and thine adversity shall be but a moment. May we never be indifferent, sisters, to the suffering of others. May we be sensitive to those about us who are hurting for whatever reason. May we, when the trials are our own, look up with the perfect brightness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and say, as did Paul, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. Death and adversity come to us all, but so does life everlasting. Above the rest, these words will tell, all is well. I bear you my testimony that the gospel is true, that we are led today by a prophet in the priesthood of God. May we heed their counsel as we meet our personal challenges and help others to do so, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Near the shores of Galilee, as the resurrected Christ dined with his disciples on a fresh catch of fish, he's asked of Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Do our worldly pursuits take precedence over our eternal objectives, even as Peter was questioned about his priorities? My beloved sisters, my message to you this hour is one of love and encouragement, that we as women can demonstrate our love of the Lord through fulfilling our God-given responsibility to feed His lambs by bringing souls unto Him and by strengthening the family both here and hereafter. It is a glorious thing to be a woman in these latter days. We, together with the priesthood, are to prepare a righteous generation for the second coming of Christ. We are led by a living prophet who counsels us to feed the lambs, enrich and protect the home, and strengthen the family. Why do you think the prophets are reminding us of our sacred duty to feed the lambs and protect the home and family? 
because it is against the home and family that Satan has aimed his greatest efforts to destroy, and far too many sheep are wandering or being enticed away out of the sheepfold, and wolves lie in wait to devour the flock. How can we help prepare children for this significant role if we, their mentors, are absent or uncaring? It's an awesome task, but one filled with hope and happiness if we make it so. Let's take an expanded look at the eternal family. We all lived with our Father in Heaven before this earth life. The scriptures say we received our first lessons in the world of spirits and were prepared to come forth in the due time of the Lord to labor in His vineyard for the salvation of the souls of men. In the premortal existence, our heavenly family was a prototype for us to follow in guiding our families here on earth. We were prepared to come to an earthly family where we could learn again sacred truths we had learned before. Parents are their children's first and most influential teachers. The responsibility of teaching proper values and sacred truths cannot successfully be delegated to anyone else. We must remember the sanctity of these children. They do not belong to us. They are children of our Father. His spirit children come to earth. There is a story of a group of Relief Society sisters making candy called Divinity at the home of one of the sisters. Two little boys in the family were allowed to eat all the divinity they could eat and scrape from the spoons and the pans and the bowls. It was the weekend of general conference, and as the family listened to the talks, one of the speakers said, There is a spark of divinity in each of us. <laughs> one of the little boys jumped up and said, A spark of divinity? Wow, I'm full of it. <laughs> yes, children are full of divinity. Surely the angels attend them. But the loving care and teachings they need in order to abide on the earth must be given by mothers and fathers and those who influence them. They need to be loved. They need to be taught. The risen Lord reiterated the counsel of Isaiah when he said, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. If we love the Lord, we will feed his lambs. But how? He has given us resources that will guide us through this brief mortal existence back to our heavenly home. The principle is illustrated in an experience that some members of our family had when we were in a very large city. Because of differences in work and school schedules, we had to book separate flights from two different airlines. Some of the family left from one airport, but my son and I were scheduled to leave from another airport south of town, nearly two hours away. There were challenges ahead. Motoring on the opposite side of the road from, which we were to, from that to which we were accustomed, congested highways, road repairs, as well as a limited time to catch the plane. We felt a dependence on the Lord as we began our journey. With road map in hand, I tried to navigate, which is not my forte, and my son tried his hand at the wheel of a rented car. I earnestly hoped that the people who made the maps had designed them to match the road signs. We were not in a position to make a mistake or backtrack, or our destination would not be realized. 
How like life, I thought. If we rely on the Lord, follow the map, watch the road signs without making a lot of unnecessary detours, we can navigate through mortality and reach our destination safely in the Lord's due time. Decisions determine destiny. What are some of the road signs or guides that help us through this earthly life? A living prophet who speaks the mind and will of God. Prayer, where we can speak to God and be directed by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures, wherein God speaks to us. The priesthood, with power to act for God. And sacred covenants and ordinances, which offer us family life with our Heavenly Father forever. The home is the basis of a righteous life, said President David O. McKay. It is the place to teach the vision of eternity to our families and help them follow the road signs in order to reach their destiny. Women hold a key role in teaching these truths, so we need to be knowledgeable and full of faith. When we are firm in our own convictions, we can give our inner strength to those about us with confidence. We are responsible for our own personal development that will give us this confidence. True personal worth comes from a secure relationship with Heavenly Father. Individual worth is intrinsic. It is internal. It is eternal. It's something that cannot be taken from us when the blossom of youth fades, when economic conditions leave us desolate, when sickness or handicaps befall us, nor when prominence and visibility are obscured. Many are led astray by the false doctrines of the world that youthfulness, beauty, adornments, possessions, power, titles, or attainments are what make one worthwhile. As in the Book of Mormon times, there are those who want to become popular in the eyes of the world rather than do what God expects. The Lord counsels Joseph Smith early in his ministry. You should not have feared man more than God. How can we build a secure relationship with Heavenly Father? Again, we refer to the guides and the road signs we have been given to direct us through life. Fervent prayer, being directed by the Holy Spirit, and searching the scriptures daily, all of which help us live virtuous lives. Then, says, say the scriptures, shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God. A woman's inner strength is important in the husband and wife relationships. As husbands and wives work together in righteousness, loving and appreciating each other, the family is fortified in countless ways. President Benson spoke to the fathers and the husbands at a fireside for parents and said, We look to you to give righteous leadership in your homes and families and with your companions and mothers of your children to lead your families back to our eternal Father. This righteous leadership is enhanced by the priesthood power which was restored to earth to bless and direct us. How can we, as women, receive the full blessings and power of the priesthood in our lives? We can sustain and support those who bear it righteously. This is by divine design, not by plan of man. I know a woman with several small children whose husband served in a time-consuming church calling. He often came home late from work, just long enough to say hello, then off he went to perform his church duties. The children sometimes had to be reassured, 
And sometimes the mother had to reassure herself when she said, Aren't we glad that Daddy is worthy to serve Heavenly Father so we can receive so many blessings? A support instead of a murmur brought results that had a lasting influence on that home and family. An important part of the plan for continued family relationships is to receive ordinances and covenants in the holy temples for ourselves and our ancestors. These ordinances and covenants are an anchor to safety for the family, both here and hereafter. Each of us belongs to a family and has ancestors who really belong to us. Should we not be about seeking after these loved ones and performing temple work that will seal them to us in eternal families? Elder John A. Witzow spoke from his own experience when he said, Whosoever seeks to help those on the other side receives help in return in all the affairs of life. When I was a young girl, a group of us were invited to Elder Witzow's home for a fireside, and afterwards he showed us his pedigree chart, a result of devoted research. As he enrolled it, it stretched across three rooms of his home. This was so impressive to our young minds that it motivated us to begin searching for information about our own ancestors. What a wonderful beginning to a lifelong interest and participation in this sacred work. A spiritual dimension is truly added to our lives when we work on our family histories. Sisters in Zion, could there be a more rewarding calling than to labor in the Lord's vineyard for the salvation of souls? We have the choice privilege of strengthening families and influencing those who have been placed in our care, as well as those who have preceded us beyond the veil. Lest we think the task is too hard, be reminded that angels will be round about us to bear us up if we are willing to do our part. The promised blessings are almost more than we can imagine. We have been blessed by a prophet of God in our day as he said, and I quote, We pray for you, we sustain you, we honor you as you bear, nourish, train, teach, and love for eternity. I promise you the blessings of heaven and all that the Father hath as you magnify the noblest call of all. Close quote. I love being a mother, a wife, a daughter, a sister, a woman in these latter days. The Lord knows us and loves each of us and desires to bless us in our important work. We must be willing to come unto Him, to accept His will over our own wants, to bring souls unto Him, to feed His lambs and His sheep, so that at that great day when we meet Him face to face, He will say, Come unto me, ye blessed, for behold, your works have been works of righteousness. I bear you my witness that the Lord lives. And I pray that we may eagerly fulfill, <clears throat> fulfill our sacred responsibility to strengthen families both here and hereafter. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brethren, I rejoice in this great conference. I'm a better man because I was here. 
I thank the Lord for the great record that has been made. And I desire to say just a few words And I speak on the subject. The Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. My beloved brethren and sisters, this has been another glorious conference of the Church. I commend to each of you the counsel of these my brethren who have spoken to us. I love them and sustain them. And I love the members of the church everywhere. I would like to speak about two sacred volumes of modern scripture, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. The Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants are bound together as revelations from Israel's God. Together and prepare his people for the second coming of the Lord. The bringing forth of these sacred volumes of scripture for the salvation of a ruined world cost the best blood of the 19th century, that of Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram. Each divine witness contains a great proclamation to all the world. The title page of the Book of Mormon and section one, the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants. This generation, said the Lord to Joseph Smith, shall have my word through you. And so it has through the Book of Mormon the Doctrine and Covenants, and Modern Revelations. The Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants testify of each other. You cannot believe one and not the other. The Book of Mormon testifies of modern books of Scripture. It refers to them as other books and last records which establish the truth of the Bible and make known the plain and precious things which have been taken away from the Bible. Excluding the witnesses to the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants is by far the greatest external witness and evidence which we have from the Lord 
that the Book of Mormon is true, at least 15 sections in the Doctrine and Covenants give us confirmed, confirming knowledge and divine witnesses that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. The Doctrine and Covenants is the binding link between the Book of Mormon and continuing work of the Restoration through the Prophet Joseph Smith and his successors. The Doctrine and Covenants, we learn temple work, eternal families, the degrees of glory, church organization, and many other great truths of the Restoration. Search these commandments, said the Lord of the Doctrine and Covenants, for they are true and faithful, and the prophecies and promises which are in them shall all be fulfilled. What I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself, and though the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled, whether by my own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. And I would like to commend to you, my brethren and sisters, that you heard great messages at this conference. And I rejoice in the opportunity I've had to listen in. And I'm grateful for the quality of messages that have been given at this conference. And I thank the Lord for the Book of Mormon that brings men to Christ. The Doctrine and Covenants brings men to Christ's kingdom. Even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the only true church upon the face of the whole earth. I know that. The Book of Mormon is the keystone of our religion, and the Doctrine and Covenants is the capstone with continuing Latter-day revelations. The Lord has placed his stamp of approval on both the keystone and the capstone. The ancient preparation of the Book of Mormon, its preservation, and its publication verify Nephi's words that the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning and he has a way to accomplish all his works among the children of men.
For behold, he hath all power unto the fulfilling of all his words. We are not required to prove that the Book of Mormon is true or is an authentic record through external evidences, though there are many. It never has been the case, nor is it now. Is it so now that the studies of the learned will prove the Book of Mormon true or false? The origin, preparation, translation, and verification of the truth of the Book of Mormon have all been retained in the hands of the Lord. And the Lord makes no mistakes. You can be assured of that. God has built in his own proof system of the Book of Mormon, as found in Moroni chapter 10, and in the testimony of the three and eight witnesses, and in various sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. We each need to get our own testimony of the Book of Mormon through the Holy Ghost. Then our testimony, coupled with the Book of Mormon, should be shared with others so that they too can know through the Holy Ghost of its truthfulness. Nephi testifies that the Book of Mormon contains the words of Christ and that people believe in Christ, they will believe in the Book of Mormon. It is important that in our teaching we make use of the language of Holy Writ. Alma said, I do command you in the language of him who hath commanded me. The words and way they are used in the Book of Mormon by the Lord should become a source of understanding and used by us in teaching, teaching gospel principles. God uses the power of the word of the Book of Mormon as an instrument to change people's lives. As the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead people to that which was just, yea, it had had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them 
Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the Word of God. Alma reminded his brethren of the church how God delivered their father's souls from hell. Behold, he changed their hearts. He awakened them out of a deep sleep, and they awoke unto God. Behold, they were in the midst of darkness. Nevertheless, their souls were illuminated by the light of the everlasting word. We need to use the everlasting word to awaken those in deep sleep so they will awake unto God. I am deeply concerned about what we are doing to teach the saints at all levels the gospel of Jesus Christ as completely and authoritatively as do the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants by this means teaching the great plan of the eternal God to use the words of Amulek. We are using the messages and the method of teaching found in the Book of Mormon and other scriptures of the restoration to teach this great plan of the eternal God. There are many examples of teaching this great plan, but I will quote just one. It is Mormon's summary statement of Aaron's work as a missionary. And it came to pass that when Aaron saw the king would believe his words, he began from the creation of Adam reading the scriptures unto the king how God created man after his own image and that God gave him commandments and that because of transgression man had fallen and Aaron did expound unto him the scriptures from the creation of Adam laying the fall of man before him and their carnal state and also the plan of redemption which was prepared from the foundation of the world through Christ for all whomsoever would believe on his name. And since man had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself but the suffering and death of Christ atoned for their sins and faith 
and repentance. The Book of Mormon saints knew that the plan of redemption must start with the account of the fall of Adam. In the words of Moroni, by Adam came the fall of man, and because of the fall came Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ came the redemption of man. Just as a man does not really desire until he is hungry food, so he does not desire the salvation of Christ until he knows why he needs Christ. No one adequately and properly knows why we need Christ until, we under, until he understands and accepts the doctrine of the fall and its effect upon all mankind. And no other book in the world explains this vital doctrine nearly as well as the Book of Mormon. Brethren and sisters, we all need to take a careful inventory of our performance and also the performance of those over whom we preside to be sure that we are teaching the great plan of the eternal God to the saints. We are accepting the teaching, what revelations tell us about the creation. Adam and the fall of man and redemption from the fall through the atonement of Christ. Do we frequently review the crucial questions which Alma asks and members of the church in the fifth chapter of Alma in the Book of Mormon? Do we understand and are we effective in teaching and preaching the atonement? What personal meaning does the Lord's suffering in Gethsemane and on Calvary have for each of us? What does redemption from the fall mean to us? In the words of Alma, do we sing the song of redeeming love? Now what should be the source for teaching the great plan of the eternal God? The scriptures, of course, particularly the Book of Mormon. This should also include the other modern-day revelations. These should be coupled with the words of the apostles and prophets and the promptings of the Spirit. Alma commanded them that they should teach nothing save it were the things 
which he taught and which had been spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets. The Doctrine and Covenant states, let them journey from thence preaching the word by the way, saying none other things than that which the prophets and apostles have written and that which is taught them by the Comforter through the prayer of faith. Now after we teach the great plan of the eternal God, we must personally bear our testimonies of its truthfulness. Alma, after giving a great message to the saints about being born again and the need for them to experience a mighty change in their hearts, sealed his teaching with his testimony in these words. And this is not all. Do you suppose that I know of these things myself? Behold, I testify to you that I do know that these things whereof I have spoken are true. And how do ye suppose that I know of this surety? Behold, I say unto you, they are made known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. And now I do know of myself that they are true. And now I do know of myself that they are true, for the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit. And this is the Spirit which is in me. Later, Amalek joined Alma as his missionary companion. After Alma had delivered to the Zoramites his message concerning faith in Christ, Amalek sealed with his testimony the message of his companion in these words. And now behold, I will testify unto you of myself that these things are true. Behold, I say unto you that I do know that Christ shall come among the children of men to take upon him the transgressions of his people and that he shall atone for the sins of the world. For the Lord God has spoken it. In his preface to the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord said that the voice of warning shall be unto all people 
by the mouths of my disciples whom I have chosen in these last days. The responsibility of the seed of Abraham, which we are, is to be missionaries to bear this ministry and priesthood unto all nations. Moses bestowed upon Joseph Smith in the Kirtland Temple the keys to gather Israel. Now, what is the instrument that God designed for the gathering? It is the same instrument that is designed to convince the world that Jesus is the Christ, that Joseph is his prophet, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true. It is that scripture which is the keystone of our religion. It is that most correct book which if men will abide by its precepts will get them closer to God than any other book. It is the book of Mormon. God bless us. God bless us all to use all the scriptures, but in particular the instrument he designed to bring us to Christ, the Book of Mormon, the keystone of our religion, along with the companion volume, the capstone, the doctrine and covenants, the instrument to bring us to Christ, Christ's kingdom, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now by virtue of the sacred priesthood in me vested, I invoke the blessings of the Lord upon the Latter-day Saints and upon people, good people everywhere. I bless you with added power to endure in righteousness amidst the growing onslaught of wickedness about which we have heard a great deal in these services tonight. I promise you that ye, you more diligently study modern revelation on gospel subjects that your power to teach and preach will be magnified and you will be so moved and the cause of Zion that added numbers will enter into the house of the Lord as well as in the mission field, I bless you with increased desire to flood the earth with the Book of Mormon, to gather out from the world the elect of God who are yearning for the truth, 
but know not where to find it. I promise you that with increased attendance in the temples of our God, you shall receive increased personal revelation to bless your life as you bless those who have died. I testify that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. Jesus is the Christ. Joseph Smith is his prophet. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.